and I will read the uh, first chapter, Hebrews chapter 1. This is the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Well, we've been in this theme of union with Christ and will continue to do so. Let me remind you briefly of where we are. Uh, Calvin is particularly helpful in this. Speaking of justification by faith in his institutes, he says, I acknowledge that we are devoid of this incomparable gift, that is the gift of righteousness, the gift of justification. We're devoid of it until Christ becomes ours. Therefore, to that union of the head and members the residence of Christ in our hearts, in fine, the mystical union, we assign, this is Calvin's word, we assign the highest rank, he's saying, we assign the highest rank to this biblical teaching. In his sermon on 2 Timothy 2.19, which is a text that reads this way, but God's Firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Calvin says, let us mark well what this word, Christianity, means. That would be interesting if I ask you, and we took a moment. So here's the word, Christianity. 
define it. Well, be interesting how we might respond. Here is Calvin. This word, Christianity, its meaning is to be members of the Son of God. Union with Christ. Put in simpler terms, the doctrine of union with Christ teaches that the Holy Spirit joins believers to Jesus by faith. And that by virtue of that spiritual bond, we receive, this is this has been crucial throughout these sermons. We receive both Christ Himself and all His benefits. So, just by way of review, you know, in the bulletin, it read Sermon 6 on this. Sermon 1 was a link to the Old Testament through the New Covenant prophecy, showing how really that pointed toward union with Christ. Uh, Elder Harmon had sermon two with a definition and description uh, speaking of union with Christ. In the third sermon, we looked at some insufficient understandings of the Christian life, then the plainly taught fact of union with the real Jesus that is so intimate that he says he dwells within us. The fourth one, in these last three, counting this one, in the fourth one, I called it a practical application. In other words, we answered a question. Uh, Union with Christ enables us to answer the question that's as relevant in the year, you know, 2,000 years ago as it was, as it is now in 2019. Who am I? It's the question of identity. And we answer, we are a man, we're a woman in Christ. The fifth sermon was another practical application answering a question, what am I here for? Well, this is a question of purpose. And so if my identity is that of a person united to the Lord Jesus Christ, then certainly we can say my purpose is to be like Christ. Christ. And we spoke about that and the possibility of seeing real progress in, in, in holiness and in sanctification. And now tonight, it answers a third question from the bulletin. You saw it, what can I hope for? This is a question of destiny. Where am I heading? Where am I going? Where is home? Um, and so that's where we're going to go tonight. And um, I, I need to say, I think I said it at the start and at different points, you've heard this book quoted, um, a book that has been very helpful and suggestive is a book entitled Union with Christ, subtitled The Way to Know and Enjoy God by Rankin Wilborn. And you can spend whatever, $16, $20 for the book, or just so you know, if you have a Kindle device or something like that, Amazon has it for $1.99. It's worth you getting. If you need $2, talk to me. I'll get it to you. I'm very serious. Uh, one, one recognized person says, this is simply the best book for lay people on this subject because it's not easy to understand. It's not a perfect book. He, um, he doesn't deal well with the corporate aspects that the Bible teaches on union with Christ. And just so you know the future of things, 
um, our uh, elder, John Sundet, is going to address that side of this uh, doctrine. Uh, we won't be meeting next Sunday night because of shepherding groups, but in a couple of weeks, he will begin to address that subject. So, but for tonight, for tonight then, uh, we address this issue. How does this biblical doctrine of union with Christ tell me where I'm going? Where am I heading? Where is home? What is my destiny? And maybe we ask the question, where is Jesus now? Where is Jesus now? And you might tend to think, well, now, Bill, you just said that the scripture talks about him dwelling uh, in the hearts of believers by faith, Ephesians chapter 3. And that's true. Uh, that is true. Um, but the reason we read from Hebrews chapter 1 is that it gives an answer to this question. In Hebrews 1, 3 and 4, it says again, I read, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, here it comes. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so there is an answer to where Jesus is today. We confess today through the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus ascended into heaven. One person has said that the ascension of Jesus is not often seen to be a critical part of our faith. It's often ignored, it seems. My guess is that you're, you, haven't, you don't always think about Jesus' ascension and enthronement as, as helping you change dirty diapers or drive the proper speed limit, do whatever your normal daily tasks are. And yet I hope tonight we'll see that it is very, uh, very applicable to our lives today. Um, he ascended, you know, the Apostles' Creed said, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, at God's right hand. Um, Christ's resurrection and his ascension and enthronement means that Jesus' physical body is alive somewhere in the universe at this very moment. Because I don't know where it is. We cannot see it. Does not mean it isn't true. It is precisely true. Because he is God, Jesus is spiritually present everywhere. We understand that. But because he is man... Jesus is physically present right now in heaven. His risen body is in heaven at the right hand of God, very much alive. So let's see if that helps us, because remember, the bigger thing is we've talked about we are united to Christ, to Jesus the Christ. So, that's... Where is Jesus now? He is in heaven. Second main point. What's he doing there? What is he doing in heaven at the Father's right hand? Now, I'm not going to be comprehensive here. That would probably take too long. But I do want to mention two main categories of action or ministry, if you will, of what our Lord is involved in today that guarantee our destiny, that guarantee it. One, the very first one, 
is he is king. He is king. We could elaborate on that. He is king of kings and lord of lords. There, he, he is the one who declares all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. He sits at his father's right hand. And let, let's see this in the text. I've already pointed out uh, what is read in verses 3 and 4. But if we look uh, at verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 1. It says, of the, th- of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Now, O God is a reference at this point to the Son, to Jesus. A throne is a place you sit with royalty as kingship. He is on the throne of the universe as king of kings. Note for how long that is true. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He will not be moved from that position. We go a little bit later in the chapter, verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. What kind of power and strength is there in that? We're thrown back to a book like Job where God comes and meets Job and utterly, I was going to use the word crush, that's probably a bit too strong, but humbles Job by all of the questioning of what God the creator does. And he speaks it, so so the text goes on in Hebrews chapter 1, the heavens are the work of your hand. And then you get this time element again, they're going to perish the mountains that, that have been here for so long in Connecticut and the oceans and all, all of these things of creation will perish, but you remain. They're going to wear out. Verse 12, you are the same and your years will have no end. And then, of course, we, where we end, the Lord said to him, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He, uh, we've already said he is king. He is Lord. Uh, he is the great victor. All of his enemies. None. Whether they're all combined. No one of any. There, there will be none of any size or might or ability. That can remove Jesus from the throne upon which he sits. Throughout the Bible, the right hand of God is a symbol of power and authority. Some of these quotes came from Psalm 110, where that is so. Uh, Jesus is now enthroned in the seat of authority. He gave the church the great commission based upon that. So what's he doing? What's he doing at the right hand of God? Did you notice He's sitting there. He's seated there. You know what that means? It's a visual picture of Jesus' words from the cross. Wonderful words. The words, it is finished. Is that not good news? That the great work 
that our Lord entered this world to accomplish the work of saving a countless multitude of sinners. It is finished. And it is declared finished because he sits. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was certainly crowned on the cross with thorns, but it's in his ascension and exaltation that he is enthroned. Wilburn, writing in his book, says this, There is a certain man of a certain height and a certain weight that now sits on the throne over the whole cosmos. It's Jesus the Christ. And you see what this begins to tell us. It tells us we don't have to be afraid anymore. Paul will write in Colossians chapter 3 this issue again of union with Christ. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is is, is stored away, is is contained in, is is kept safe by Jesus, the King of Kings, seated at the right hand of God. You're safe. And that's why Paul will go on to say, therefore, Paul understands we're living in this world, and he will go on to say in Colossians chapter 3, okay, therefore then, seek the things that are above And then he elaborates, where Christ is, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's an application, a very wonderful present application about who our ascended Lord is, to whom we are joined. He is the king. We can actually have peace in this world. Our earthly lives are not over. There are days, years, months, who knows how much longer there is that the Lord will give you to live in this world. There will be trials and troubles and different things. But we can have peace in this world because we are united to the King. Our lives here are not over, but his work is finished. Another application that is here in knowing this, consider the history of the early church, what is recorded for us either in the New Testament or in those early years. They were willing to die because they knew who the real king was. It was a world under Roman rule, The Romans wanted them to worship the Caesar, to bow, to offer incense, to call him Lord, and they wouldn't do it. And so some were stoned, and some were eaten by animals, and some were crucified, and some were tortured, and this. But they had a king worth dying for. They had a king that that was worth saving, that was worthy. In our, matter of fact, you know, it's interesting how the Lord brings some things together. Just in our the linking where I am right now in the sermon 
with what we just prayed about, about people in our congregation beginning to feel the tension between a secular society and culture that wants to press us down and to make us submit, to make us live a certain way or to say certain things that would betray the true king in order to go along and get along. What are we going to do? We have a king who is worthy of serving, a king worthy even to die for. You know, our, um, our larger catechism has some wonderful questions concerning these things. One of them is, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Question 45 in the larger catechism. And it begins a a certain answer. He executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself, talking about the establishment of the church and, and such, that he corrects us for our sins, preserving and supports us under all our temptations and sufferings, And then he says, restraining and overcoming all our enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his glory and our good and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. And it's interesting, we even have a question that says, how is Christ exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God? And that answer is he is exalted in the sitting at the right hand of God in that, listen, listen to this language and how, how they understood what we have been spending now six sermons on. He's exalted in the sitting at the right hand of God in that as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and on earth, and does gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnishes his ministers and people with gifts and graces, and makes intercession for them. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So those are a couple of applications. Perseverance and overcoming in this world, and and a related theme that of the removal of fear and its replacement by peace in knowing we are united to the king of the universe. Uh, Second category here, he is the final great high priest. We just said he was the great king. He is the great high priest. Now we're in Hebrews 7 again. And let me... Uh, this is wonderfully encouraging. I, I ask you to take your Bibles and take a look. We're going to just scan through this text a bit. But in Hebrews 7, starting at verse 15, 15, 16, and 17, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but highlight the fact, by the power of an indestructible life. Who in the world is going to take the life out of King Jesus? The author of Hebrews says it is an indestructible life. Satan and death and hell and whatever was thrown against it did not touch him. 
It is an indestructible life. And then he goes on and quotes, you are a priest for how long? Forever. Forever. Go down to verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood for how long? Permanently. Because why? He continues forever. What kind of ability does he have? Consequently, he is able to save, save meagerly, minorly, no, save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives. It's an indestructible life. It is a permanent situation that King Priest Jesus sits on the throne of the universe, having said, because it was so, it is finished. Hebrews 7, picking up at verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. It is finished. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What kind of priest do you want? How about a perfect eternal one who is able to save to the other? And then we, I read into chapter 8 just to continue because he says, now the point in what we're saying, I figured we may as well read the point. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high... Did you pick up on the verb tense? What tense is the verb have? Present tense. April 7, 2019. We have... This such a high priest. Where is he? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In the true tabernacle, the true tent. Jesus stood in our place 2,000 years ago on that cross. Jesus sits now, you might say, so to speak, in our place now and forever. This means that God's benevolence and goodness and kindness toward you is as sure as Christ being fixed at God's right hand. He will not be moved. He's there as a sympathetic high priest. The author of Hebrews brings that out in Hebrews 4.15. He's been tempted in every way. What a wonderful thing, isn't it, Will? When you preach on the temptation of Christ and his absolute victory over Satan. And then we come tonight and what kind of priest can we pray to? One who has been tempted in every way as we are and did not sin. That's the kind of priest we have and need to have. And I love the answer to question 55 of the larger catechism. How does Christ make intercession? Because that's what he does, particularly as priest. By the way, this is confirmed also in, with Paul in Romans 8.29. But listen to the answer. 
Christ makes intercession. How does he do so? By his appearing, once again, the the clarity with which they understood this, by his appearing, not just in heaven, but by his appearing in our nature, continually, that's their word for permanence, before the Father in heaven. He appears there continually in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, his active obedience and his crucifixion. What is he doing? It says declaring his will, that is declaring to his father to have it, the merit of his obedience, to have it applied to all believers. The Son of God, Jesus the Christ, the one to whom we are united, looking, sitting at his Father's right hand, looking at his Father and says, Father, apply the merit of what I have accomplished to all believers. Goes on answering all accusations against his people and procuring for us Their word is quiet of conscience, peace of conscience, notwithstanding our daily failings. Are we sinners? Absolutely. Do we sin greatly still? Absolutely. But we have a high priest in heaven, and he is successful, absolutely successful in interceding, procuring peace of conscience for us. He procures for us access with boldness to the throne of grace. We just did that minutes ago. You can do it on your way home. You can do it when you kneel to go to your bed at night. Bold access to this throne of grace and acceptance of our persons and services. Well, let's draw this to a conclusion. Why does union with Christ give us such hope on the journey? In other words, and by the way, let me make this clear. Maybe I haven't said this as clearly as I ought to now that I think about it. So what's the answer to the question? What is our absolutely sure destiny as a child of God? Heaven, right? The presence of God. Fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated on the throne. It is an unbreakable union. We will get there. He will ensure that. He does that. He has never failed yet in bringing his people to be with him. So how does union with Christ hold all this together? How does it give us such a marvelous hope as this? It tells us that God is not, is not only for you, but he is with you. He is with you and he is for you. You may not have thought much about Jesus ascending into heaven, but Jesus promises us, remember from John 16, he's told those disciples in that upper room, It is for your advantage that I go away. Oh my, is it ever an advantage to have this king and this priest 
upon the throne of God at his Father's right hand. Let us go to him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we bless you and praise you for what you have done in sending forth your Son to be our Savior and our Lord, our Priest, our King, our Shepherd, our Friend, our Brother. We thank you for uh, who could devise such a way of linking with such intimacy sinners such as I am sinners such as we are, to the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded of that great upper room discourse where he prays to you and in essence still does so. Father, I desire that they whom you have given me be with me where I am that they may see my glory. That is our destiny, and we say hallelujah. We praise you. Give us this joy in living out our days here. Give us a fearlessness. Give us a a passion to live with loyalty and allegiance to our great king. We make this our prayer in his name. Amen.